Good morning, church. How's everyone doing today? Great. Good. Well, if it looks like I'm tired today, it's because I am. So have a little grace with me, but uh, I'm, I'm kind of adjusting to the older life, right? I was young for so many years. In my mind, I still am. And my body's proven to me regularly that I'm not. And so a couple weeks, it's actually Father's Day, my son challenged me to a foot race. <clears throat> I'm like, I could totally smoke him. And it didn't happen the way I thought it would go in my brain. My 25-year-old brain um, was lying to my 50, almost 2-year-old body, and I pulled both. I tore, actually, both hamstrings and both legs and took a while to recover. If you saw me walking a little funny for a while, that's what it was. Also learning that I can't sleep in like I used to, or I can't uh, operate on limited sleep like I used to. So um, I am trying to adjust to uh, a couple of late nights, <clears throat> but God is good. And I'm glad to be in his house this morning, and hopefully you are as well. So if you're tired, I understand, but please don't fall asleep on me. I will call you out, okay? Just saying. All right. So we're in a series that we've been in throughout the summer, and we're just looking at the parables of Jesus. The title of the series is The Moral of the Story. Like, what's the big idea of these parables? Um, over a third of Jesus' teachings were in the form of these parables. And so we've been just taking the, the most common ones, the most popular ones, over this summer and focusing on them. And we said some of them are like just descriptions of what the kingdom of heaven is like. Um, in fact, a lot of them are that way. But we also talked about some of them would deal with end times. And um, that is the case with the scripture that we're in today. We're going to be looking at the five talents, or some of your versions will say that. You know what a pericope is? A pericope is the heading just above the passage of the scripture that you're reading, right? So the publishers of that translation put the pericopes in there just to kind of help you know where you're at. Um, and so some of your translations will say it's the parable of the five talents. Mine says it's the parable of the three servants. And I think that is a little, I like that one better because it's not about the talents. It's about what they do with the talents. And so we'll be looking at that parable of, uh, and that's not the gospel. I mean, the pericopes, they're, they're not authoritative, right? They're just people's suggestions. So we're going to look at that parable today. So what I would like to do is I pray one more time. I know we just did that, but you know, Jesus said my house will be a house of prayer. And so I think it's okay. And so we're about to open up a spiritual book. And so I think it's helpful for us to ask him to illuminate the scriptures, to show us his truth. And so would you uh, just agree with me there and join me in prayer one more time? Father, we come before you now in this moment. Lord, I know it was awesome to get to get together in fellowship and to sing songs of worship and praise. And you are worthy of all of that. But Lord, now in this moment, we open up a book, a book that is, uh, Lord, inspired uh, that you inspired men to write. We believe it's holy without error, and we believe it's sufficient. We don't believe it's part of the truth, but we believe it's the whole truth. And, Lord, you said that you would sanctify us by your truth, and we know that that truth is your word. And so today, I ask that as you said in the parables, uh, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. God, that you would give us ears to hear. We want to hear what you want to say to us. Lord, give us eyes to see. And, Lord, like a field is turned over when it's plowed and the seed is ready to be planted, do that in our hearts. God, give us soft hearts. Give us teachable spirits that we might be able to learn something today and, Lord, that you would speak to us. Um, however, Lord, you know every person in this room and you know what we need. You know when we need it. And so, God, I just ask that what you can do today, you do it. And as far as I'm concerned, Lord, I humble myself before you. I don't have it all figured out. I'm just a man, but I'm the man that you've called here. And in this moment right here, right now, if there's something that you don't want me to say, God, I pray that you would just help me to forget that part. Lord, if there's something you want me to say, I pray that you would give me the clarity, and I pray that you would give me the confidence and the boldness as though I'm speaking your very words, which we believe is true of your word. And I humbly ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the parable of the three servants. So let's go ahead and read it, and then we'll start breaking it down. So it says, again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. 
He gave five bags of silver. Some of your translations will say bags of gold or five talents. Um, to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. He then left on his trip. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earned five more, 100% return. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more, again, 100% return. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. After a long time, their master returned from his trip, and he called them to give an account of how they had used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more, and he said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I have earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who had received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I earned two more. The master said, verse 23, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Verse 24, When the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, harvesting crops where you didn't plant and gathering crops where you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. Verse 26, But the master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. If you knew that I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, take the money <clears throat> excuse me, from this servant and give it to the one with the ten bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what they have <clears throat> will be taken away. In verse 30, now throw this useless servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whew. Pretty serious there at the end, isn't it? So it is said of the gospel that it could be summarized in this catechism. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Amen? You can summarize the whole gospel there. Christ has died. That's the good news that he died for our sins. He has risen on the third day. Hallelujah. He ascended into heaven. And one day, Christ will return again. So the whole gospel there, a third of it refers to and, 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 and pays attention forward to the return of Christ. In fact, the very last words of Jesus recorded in the Bible in Revelation, he says, Behold, I come quickly. I'm coming soon. And so saying that, we should, as a church, be interested, at least some, in this idea of eschatology. Eschatology is the study of end times. Now I think there are two extremes. Sometimes there are people that's all they want to focus on is eschatology. What's going to happen at the end? What does the Bible say about end times? And they get so um, just engulfed in that and so focused on that that they miss um, the application of the truths that are like really kind of simple, like love your neighbor as yourself. Maybe it's not that simple. But, you know, like the obedience to his word. We get so focused on eschatology that we're not putting into practice some of the, the commands and the teachings of Jesus. And on the other side, sometimes there are people who say, hey, I don't want anything to do with eschatology. It's too hard to understand. Everybody's arguing about it. Nobody really knows. And so I just leave it over there. The reality is, he said, there's a blessing to those who read this book of prophecy talking about revelation. And so I think as a church, we should be somewhat interested in eschatology. I believe both extremes are unhealthy. 
So I believe we need to have a healthy balance where we say, hey, I want to look at the teachings of Christ, but I don't want to ignore the teachings of what is going to happen in the end days. And so that's the context of this parable. Let me remind us that we're in the Olivet Discourse. Jesus has left um, an area where he had, he's already prophesied that the buildings of Jerusalem will be destroyed to the temple, right? That, that all those buildings will be destroyed. His disciples heard this, and they naturally said, when? When are these going to be destroyed? And then they ask him the follow-up questions, two parts, like what will be the sign to signal your return? They had no question that Jesus was going to return. He had told them that he was going to die and be raised, but he would come back again. They knew he would return. So what's the sign that will signal your return? And then secondly, and what is the sign of the end of the age? And so Jesus begins to unpack in chapter 24 and 25 this teaching on end times. What will the world be like when Jesus returns? And so he's asking, he's answering these Three questions. So in the parable last week, we looked at the parable of the ten bridesmaids, the, the, the virgins. Uh, there's a couple different ways it's worded. Uh, but I believe that focuses on readiness that is manifested or it's demonstrated in their being prepared. Right? And he says, be prepared, be watchful, because you don't know when the Son of Man is coming. And I, and I made the defense that I don't believe that is speaking of the church because the church is the bride of Christ. And we have a special union with the bridegroom. Amen? A special one. And he, he didn't come for the bride maids there. They were part of the party. So I believe that this is talking about those that are left at the end of the age, post-church. If you believe in a rapture, I do. I'll just put that out there in front. I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. I have my whole life. And as I've studied this and I've been challenged on it, I'm even more bold in that foundation day. Not arrogant about it, but I'm just like, God, it's just it's good news. And, and this imagery of the bridegroom coming back for his bride, he has to come back because the marriage is not complete. Amen? If you place your faith in Christ, you are the bride of Christ, and he will return for his bride. And so we believe this is after that, and there's a time of tribulation because he immediately goes into what to look for, and he describes things that are described in the great tribulation. In fact, he talks about when you see the abomination that causes desolation, that's the 70th week of Daniel. He says halfway through the tribulation, it's going to get bad. And so Jesus is explaining that. And at that time, there will be people alive living on the earth. And so he goes into the parable of the, the bridesmaids and now the parable of the servants or the talents. And I think the focus of this is readiness that is demonstrated in being good stewards with the resources of God. All right, so... Let me clear something up quickly because I think that there can be some confusion. When we approach scriptures like this, we're coming from 2,000 years down in history looking backwards at what Jesus was teaching. To the disciples there on that moment when he said, hey, tell us when these things will happen, Jesus prophesied that the temple would be destroyed. From our perspective, that already happened in 70 AD. It was demolished, right? But there's still some of this prophecy that's not yet been fulfilled. It's still waiting on it to happen, right? Are you with me? So they're waiting for this to happen from their perspective. It's all future. And so they're naturally saying, Jesus, what's it going to be like when you return? And so when we look at it through the lens of our Christianity, we try to fit ourselves into the story. Now, I don't want us to dismiss the application because I believe there's only one interpretation of Scripture, but there can be many applications to it. So we don't want to dismiss the application that we can draw from the text, but I want to be careful that we look at it in the context in which it was given because that helps us to better understand it. Are you with me? So through the lens of Christianity, if we say this is about a genuine believer who is assigned a task, and if they don't fulfill that task, they don't do the work, they're in danger of spending eternity in hell. Because that's what verse 30 says, cast this person into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That dude's thrown into hell. And that's pretty serious, isn't it? 
So if it's about a genuine believer in works, then how, do you, how many you know that goes completely against the gospel? That's not good news, right? And so I don't believe it. Well, shame, but it says he's a servant. Yeah, but I could make the argument that the whole humanity, the whole, um, the whole human race um, is a servant of God because every one of us will be held accountable to him at one point. The Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to God. Even the ones that said he doesn't exist. Even the ones that hate him, spurn him, reject his word, and do everything they can, everything they can to just fight against his cause, he says, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess to God. You can make the argument that all of us are servants. This man had a knowledge of the master, but he didn't know him well, as we'll see in the text. And how many know that God is omniscient, he knows all things, and so you could say, well, of course the master knew the servant. Rather than this parable being about a genuine believer who's not doing the work, it's more, I think, clearly um, understood between genuine faith and non-genuine faith, true believers and false believers. Because here's the truth in our church today. Just because you say you're a Christian doesn't mean that's the case. I'm not trying to be mean or ugly. Like we're saying, I've got the bumper sticker, dude. I've got the cross around my neck. I've got a tattoo. It doesn't mean anything, right? Because a genuine believer is one who has been reborn when he's been regenerated, right? He's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And from that is going to begin a, a, a production, if you will, of, of a crop. And so as Christians, we are not saved because of our works, but we're saved for those works. In other words, we're saved by grace through faith. And as a result, it makes me want to do the things that would please God. Are you with me, church? And so the Bible says that we are saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast about it. It's either good news or it's not. And if it's not good news, then it's not good news if a believer, a genuine believer, can lose their salvation because they didn't invest whatever was entrusted to them. And so I think it better applies to those that are living on the earth at the time of the return of Christ. Now, if you believe in a pre-trib rapture, church is not here, there will be occupants on the earth during that time. A seven-year time of tribulation. And during that time, there's the two witnesses, they're preaching the gospel about Jesus, the Messiah. And there will be people then that are looking forward to the return of Jesus. And he's coming, right? And they're looking forward to the return of, of Christ. There will be those who um, are going along. And they're like, hey, man, we want to trust and we want to believe. And like the five foolish, the five wise bridesmaids, we will know that there are those that were not prepared. And the door was shut on them. That door of opportunity is closed. And the same thing is true in the church age. There will be those who say, Lord, Lord, I did many things in your name. He'll say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I did not know you. So church, hear me say this. I don't say it to be mean, ugly, or hurt somebody's feelings, but the most important decision that we can make in this life is what do we do with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Amen? Because it's good news. The good news is all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's nothing that I could ever do on my best day to earn a ticket to heaven. But the Bible says I've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's good news, right? So now here's, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, well, Shane, if it's not about a genuine believer in works, you're saying works don't matter? Uh-uh, I didn't say that. Because I think there's work for us as Christians to do. And I think that we'll be held accountable for that as well. It's just different than what we see in this parable. And I'll explain that hopefully in a moment. But I do believe there is one work that all of us are commanded to do. Here it is in John chapter 6. Somebody came to Jesus and they said, we want to perform God's works, plural, Two, what should we do? Jesus told them this is the only work, singular. This is it. The only work that God wants you to do, believe in the one he has sent. Amen? That's what I say is the most important decision we can make is what do you do with the gospel? Do you believe it? 
Have you believed in the name of Jesus? Do you trust in him and him alone for salvation? Because it is Jesus plus nothing, my friends, when it comes to this gospel of grace. Now, some people say that's too easy, Shane, too heavy on the grace. It is pretty, pretty amazing, church, because none of us deserve it. But that's the gospel. And, and this is the church age, this age of grace. And one day that's going to come to a close. This particular passage, I believe, is further in the future, and there will be people on the earth who will say the same things. Hey, I'm believing in the Messiah, but they won't be ready, and they'll miss out. There will be people who say, hey, I'm, I believe in the Messiah, and they're not proving it or demonstrating it by their um, stewardship of his resources. What are those? Is it the talents? Is it gold, silver? Whatever it is that he's entrusted to them, they'll be there at the end, and he'll say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, or this lazy and, and, and uh, useless servant. Cast him in outer darkness. So hear me say this. That's what I believe this is speaking of when we read the parable of the three servants. Okay, so you with me so far? All right, so three of the, that's good. The rest of you, go back and listen to it like on slow speed because I talk fast. And just on the internet, you can choose your speeds. I like to do double speed because I can track with them. Some of you are like, put him on point five where I can get a hold of what he's saying. All right, so anyways. The parable of the three servants illustrates, I think, four basic aspects of spiritual opportunity. We have been given an opportunity, spiritually speaking, with this gospel. It's presented to us, Right? For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's an opportunity for eternal salvation that is extended to you. And I much like last week that imagery of the bridegroom offering the cup to the, the bride. And, and it's basically like saying, will you? And when she takes the cup and sips it, it's like she's taking that opportunity. And she's agreeing to that union, that covenant. And he says, you're now set apart to me. Right? And so when the gospel is presented to us, we have this great opportunity, and I think there's four aspects of that we see in this parable. First off, there's the responsibility that's given, um, and then there's the reaction to that responsibility, and there's the, um, what I call the recompense or the accountability to what they've done, and also there's the reward, and we'll look at those two together. So let's go back to the passage and look through it quickly. Verse 14, again, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to. So this is a continuation of 25 verse 1 where he says, hey, this is what the kingdom is like. Now, how many of you know if you've placed your faith in Christ, you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? But we're not in the kingdom yet. So it is a present reality to us, but it's also a future hope. One day, I believe with all my heart that Jesus will sit on a literal throne of David. It's what it said, right? The prophecies, and that's yet to be done. And so if Jesus returns in the millennial time, we will, we will enjoy all that, that is the kingdom of heaven. But it is a a present reality for each one of us today. When we accept him, we become a, a citizen of that kingdom. And, and we, we look at his teachings and we want to yield to uh, the commands and the teachings and the ways of, of the kingdom. And so this responsibility says the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by a man who goes on a long journey. Now, spoiler alert, I, I think we can see that clearly in scripture is Jesus. Jesus went away on a long journey, didn't he? All right, so we know that Jesus left. Right? The first advent, he came in a, in, in a manger. He grew up, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for the sins of the world, was buried, and three days later he raised again in Acts. It says, from the Mount of Olives, he went up into the air. And they said, why are you all looking up in the air like a bunch of morons? That's Shane's version. He says, this same Jesus is going to return the same way he left. Jesus left. He's going to return again. His second advent, the return of Christ. Jesus goes on a long trip. He's going to come back. So it says, this man going on a long trip, this illustration, he called together his servants. Now, 
Keep in mind also, Israel was also called the servants of, of God. He called his servants together and he entrusted them, his money, to them while he was gone. <clears throat> he gave five bags of silver. Some of your translations will say gold. Some will just say five talents. Two bags of silver to another and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. Now, let me kind of just unpack that for a moment. Back in the day, if a, a rich master was going to leave for a long trip, it was not uncommon for him to give a large sum of money, property, resources to a servant and say, hey, I'm gone. You're going to act on my behalf while I'm gone. Put it to work. We see this in Genesis 49. Whenever um, Joseph was sold into slavery right by his brothers and he was bought by Potiphar, he was a servant of Potiphar, but the Bible says that the Lord was with Joseph. And while he was there, he caused everything that man to do to succeed. And so it didn't take long for Potiphar to say, dude, Joseph's the man. I'm just going to let him run things. And all he had to worry about was eating food is what it said. In fact, whenever Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, what does it say about Joseph? He says, there's no one with more authority than I have right now. That's a servant speaking about what the master had entrusted to him. He says, no one has more authority than me right now, and the master has kept nothing from me except for you, Potiphar's desperate housewife. And that would be a wicked thing to do before God. And, and so it was not uncommon for them to give some of their resources and say, hey, manage this while I'm gone. Now, now the, the talents, what is a talent? A talent is a weight or a measure. It's not an amount, right? So if it's a talent of gold, it's a lot more. If it's a talent of silver, it's a little less, but it's still a lot. But the five talents is just a, a weight. It's like 80 pounds of whatever you're weighing. And so just doing a little bit of the math and like what we know a denarii is a day's wage, playing around with those numbers, it was like the equivalent of one point, almost two million, almost two million dollars given to the servant. It's a pretty significant amount that he gives to him. And he's saying, hey, take this and use it as your own. Take it, appropriate it unto yourself and put it to work, right? So make sure we, we get that there. So there's a huge responsibility. And with that responsibility comes some authority. So they have the freedom to invest it. And the idea is that they invest it not just once, but a continual investment until the master returns. So there's the, the great responsibility that he gives to all three of them according to their ability. So notice he gave five to one, three to the other, and one to another. Now, we understand that, right? So we're like, you have people that you can really, really, really depend on. You're like, this guy's a rock star. You can give them anything. They'll get it done. You don't even have to worry about them. And then you got the other one on the other end of the spectrum. you got to babysit that one, right? I can't, I, can't even, uh, I can't even plan on them being at work on time. Or, you know, I don't want to give them any responsibility because they're going to drop the ball big. It's going to put the company in a bind or whatever. So in proportion to their abilities, this master gives of his goods, his property, his wealth to his servants. That's a huge responsibility. What do they do with the responsibility? What is the reaction to that? Verse 16, it says, The servant who received the five bags of silver immediately began to invest it. I don't know what the investments were like, but he went out and he began the process of investing. And it says that he had 100% return on his money. I would like to do one of those kinds of investments today, wouldn't you? It was pretty powerful. He got that. And it says the one with two bags also did the same thing. He went out, put it to work, and it brought back 100-fold again. But it says the servant, in verse 18, who received the one bag of silver, he dug a hole in the ground and he hid the master's money. Now, if you've ever dug a hole in the ground and hid your money there, would you tell me where it's at? Because I think it'd be kind of fun to go dig that up. But we all understand that if you dig a hole and put your money in there, it's not doing any good, is it? 
In fact, I heard years ago, I was in Mexico on a mission trip, and I heard um, of a, a tale of a, an older gentleman there that didn't trust the government and their money. And so he took all of his money out of the bank, and he hid it in like a little cave on his property or whatever it was. And, and they said in the meantime that they changed all the currency in Mexico, and they went to a different kind of monetary system. And so this man went from a very rich, rich man overnight to a very poor man the next day because he basically hid the money, took it out. And so it's not good to take the money out and hide it in the, in the, in the ground. Amen? So that's the reaction. That's what they did with this great responsibility before them. But one that I think that we need to understand that is true then, is true of us today too, on this four aspects of spiritual opportunity. There is a responsibility that is presented to everyone. There's a reaction to that responsibility. But one day there's an accounting for each of us of those reactions to that responsibility. One day there's a recompense and Christ himself will return and he will judge the world. And we're like, well, what judgment? Well, if you're part of the, uh, the church, it's the Bema Seat judgment. If you're uh, an unbeliever, there's the, the judgment of the nations, the judgment of the Gentiles, there's the great white throne judgment. At that point, it's too late. That's not determining of heaven or hell. That's just the degree of the unbelievers and, and what they'll experience in hell. That's pretty serious, right? And so the idea is that all creation is subject to God, and one day we will all be accountable before him. And so that's the case in this parable. He says, after a long time, the master returned from his trip. Now, the idea is that they didn't know when he was going to come. It just happened suddenly, but he came, and it says he called them all in, given account. What? Of what? Of what they did with their money? No, no, what did they do with his money? What did you do with my money? The resources that I gave to you while I was gone, what did you do with that? That's accountability. And it says he called them all in to give an account. And so um, as we look at this, let's look at the, the accountability and then the reward of each one. So verse 20, the servant to whom he had entrusted five bags of silver came forward with five more and he said, Master, and I don't think this was cocky. I don't think he's being arrogant. I think he's just matter of factly saying, hey, you gave me five and I put it to work and man, look what I did. I was able to get five more. And he presents it to the master and the response he says, the master was full of praise. Wow, awesome. I don't know what it looks like, but he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Stop there. Some of you read that and go, really? He was faithful and you give me more to do? Again, you've got those people that are, they can handle more responsibility, right? And so that's actually a good thing. He's like, I trust you. You're the man or you're the, the girl. You're going to get it done. And so you've been faithful with little. I'm going to give you more responsibilities. And then he says, let's celebrate together. Some of your translations say, enter the joy of the Lord. Right? And that's the response. That's the reward of um, this man's um, stewardship of the master's resources. So verse 22, the servant who had received the two bags of silver came forward, and just like the first one, he says, Master, you gave me two bags to invest, and I've earned two more. I made you 100% profit, master. And notice the reward and the response from the master is the exact as the first one. He says, the master said, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. But this is where it gets different. It says the servant... With the one bag of silver, it's like, mm-mm-mm, accounting day. The master shows up and says, all you guys come together. And, and this one's sitting over here going, oh, you know, I played it safe. I buried it in the dirt, but it's time for him to come clean with the master. And he says, the man says, master, I knew that you were a harsh man. Are you, do you catch this? He's like, this is, you don't know the character of the master. 
He knows some of, uh, of the character. He's like, I know who the master is, but he don't know the master because he don't trust the master. He says, I knew you were a harsh man. I knew that you were a harsh man, and you harvest crops that you didn't plant, and you gather crops that you didn't cultivate. Some would say that that response there was indicative of someone who didn't have faith in the master, right? He didn't trust him, and because of that, he was fearful of losing it, so he buried it in the ground. And what was Jesus' reward to that? You wicked and lazy servant, you dirtbag. And he says, if you knew that I harvested crops and didn't plant and gather crops that I didn't cultivate, this is not an admission to what that man said about the master. He's just say, basically saying, so you say that I'm harsh and I harvest crops that I don't plant and gather crops that I don't cultivate. Why didn't you at least deposit my money into the banks? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. And then he says, all right, take his money, give it to the woman with ten. And it says, take this useless servant Throw him into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, so the responsibility, the reaction, the accounting or the recompense, and then the reward. And so what is the moral of this story? What is the moral of this parable? I think it's very simply, and it's prove or demonstrate your readiness by being faithful stewards. In this context, at the end of time when Christ returns, there will be those who believe the Messiah is going to come, and they're even trusting and hoping that the Messiah will come. But maybe they're not genuine in that belief and that faith. They're just kind of going along with the crowd. They have a knowledge of the Messiah, the Master, but they don't truly know him. Thus, they've not placed faith in him. Right? And when the Master comes back, he says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. And so the reality is, is there will be people on the earth when Christ returns that will be genuine believers. And there will be those that are not genuine believers. And I would say the same thing is true of the church today. Amen? There are those who are genuinely following Christ and there are those who are just, maybe they're deceived or maybe they're just pulling the wool over the eyes and they're just playing the game, but they've genuinely not given themselves to the gospel and trusted in it for salvation. That's the reality. I don't say that to be mean, but the reality is, is one day when we get to heaven and we get to the end, we will be shocked at some of those that are there and we'll be shocked at some of those that are not there. But the reality is, is when he does come, we will, that will be revealed. Amen? And so it's demonstrated here by their stewardship. And I believe that you can make the case that the servant with the one bag did not trust. He did not believe the master. And because he didn't trust him, he buried it in the dirt. And I think the same thing is true for us. We have this great spiritual opportunity to trust the gospel. Right? And like the servant, to appropriate it to ourselves. Hey, he's given me this great responsibility. I want to invest it in my life first. I believe. I trust. And from there, boom, see what happens. Right? And there will be those who never take it for themselves. They never trust in the gospel genuinely on their own. And they stand in danger of being cast into outer darkness at the end when Christ returns. So, again, as when you look at application, I think you have to look at this in the context which it's given. And it's given in the answer to the question, when will these things take place? What's the sign that will signal your return? And what will the end of the age be like? And so Jesus is laying out what the end of the age is like. And so you think of all the people that inhabit the earth, and there will be those who will hear during that time of tribulation the gospel, and they will believe, and there will be those who genuinely don't believe. That's a reality, right? So that's the universal, I mean, that's the, the, the context there. But I think a more universal application to all mankind um, is this. And I think that from the time of creation, every person ever born, every person ever on the earth is subject to God. 
I said it because Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord and everything in it. And it says, All the people are his. Did you hear that? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He owns it all. Amen? We're stewards of it all. He says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. All the inhabitants are his. You could make the case that all of humanity is subject to the judgment of God. We are all the servants of God and held accountable to the great responsibility that's been presented throughout the ages of the gospel. For us in this church age, what a precious, sweet time that we live in today. That we, we don't have to do it through the works by keeping the commands of the Old Testament and the law, but they point us to the need for salvation um, in this era of grace by trusting in the finished work of Jesus. We've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? And so back to the works of what we're to do. Romans 4, Paul says, when people work, their wages are not a gift, but something that they have earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. Aren't you thankful that we have a God who forgives sinners? So what is the application for us as believers? I believe that uh, there is still great application for us as well, that we are to be great stewards with the resources that God has given to us. And I would start with not money, not resources, but I would start with the most precious resource of all, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Think about it in the context of the Jews in the day. Like There were some that believed in Jesus, and there were some that just fought him all the way. They, they rejected him. They didn't believe him. And they were presented this opportunity, and they rejected the truth of the gospel. And the same thing is true for us. We're presented with the gospel. That whosoever, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter how messed up your family tree is, none of that, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Right? Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 30 is condemnation. But those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? So what kind of a judgment do we face? Well, it's simple. It's the, the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. All of us, genuine believers, will one day stand before Christ and give an account for our lives here on this earth. Now, I say genuine. That means that we've already accepted the gospel. We truly believe it in our heart. We've appropriated it to ourselves, right? So we've put it into practice in our life. But we, too, will also be accountable to Christ uh, on this uh, this day. Uh, we call it the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. It says, because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Foundations are important. He says, now others are building on it. But whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. How many know he's the ultimate foundation? And so no one can build any other foundation than the one we already have. It's Jesus. It's always been Jesus. It's Jesus plus nothing. And now we're building on this foundation. He says, anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw, but on the judgment day, this is not a judgment day to determine heaven or hell. This is a judgment of the believers that are righteous by the blood of Christ standing before him, and all the works are tried by fire. You remember that one? And it says, the fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. Next verse, important, the builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. That's good news. Because 
Though our works are tried by fire and what's left is the reward, the builder is saved. Why? Because we're made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. By grace, through faith, Jesus plus nothing. I think that's good news for the church today. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I don't believe this is speaking of a genuine believer. But here's the, I guess the plea from a pastor. is like, man, hear this, the most important thing we do. It's not just believe, because the Bible says the demons believe and they shudder with fear. So it's not a matter of just saying, oh, I believe in Jesus, or I believe that he exists, or I believe in the Messiah. But it's what you, the word pistevo is the word believe, and it means to trust in, to rely on. What are we relying on? We're relying on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And my friends, that's the only work that God wants for us is to believe in the one he sent. What did Jesus do? He died on the cross for my sins and for your sins. And whenever you recognize your need for salvation, you turn from your sin, you repent of that, and you say, Jesus, save me. He says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's good news. And if you've done that, you should have a smile on your face right now. Amen? So here's a question. In closing, I would say, are you genuine? Now, I don't, David and I were talking about this earlier before the service about judging things that we see in the world, you know, you see a heinous crime, you're like, what would you do in that situation? Oh, I'll tell you what I would do. And everybody's got different opinions of what the judgment should be or the punishment should be. <clears throat> to which I reminded him and I have to remind myself, is like, we're not good at being judges, are we? Because if it's my kid, I want to go lenient. But if it's somebody I don't know, throw the book at them, hit them, hammer them. We're not qualified as judges. There's only one judge who's qualified, who's totally righteous in his judgment. Amen? And so when I ask the question, are you genuine in your belief and you're in the gospel? Have you genuinely placed your faith in the gospel? He knows the heart. We can play games. We can fool everybody. We can have the tattoos, the crosses, the bumper sticker. I said in the first service, if you got the bumper sticker, don't drive like a, a maniac like I do. Are you genuine? Does your life demonstrate that you've been changed? Does your life demonstrate that you belong to him? So here's what the Bible says, that when you place your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your heart. And the Bible says the fruit of that spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, and faithfulness, I think. There's nine of them. Yeah. But he produces that type of work in our lives. And so the question is, does it demonstrate that you genuinely placed your faith in Christ? Because it will. James says that faith without works is dead. It's a useless faith. So we can say it all day long, but the genuineness of our faith will be demonstrated by our stewardship of what he has given to us, the gospel. Has it been invested into your heart, your life? Is it producing fruit? Now, it don't have to be a lot of fruit. To one he gave five, to the other one he gave two. But is there fruit? Are you genuine believer? Are you being good stewards with what he's given you? Because I think there's application there as well. God has given us many opportunities and many resources to spread the gospel, to live for him in a way that honors him. And I think it's a reminder for us to be good stewards and to demonstrate that we genuinely are his by the way that we live out our lives, the way we work in our workplaces, the way we talk with our mouths, the, the way we just engage in relationships with other people. It matters, church. And so aren't you thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ that it's not like, hey, you're, you're saved by grace, but there's this little footnote down at the bottom, read the fine print, right? And, and, and then he's going to give you some stuff. And if you don't use that stuff in the right way, it could void the whole thing and you could go to hell. That's good news. That's nah, not good news. 
the good news is the good news. And if it was up to us, none of us, none of us would ever be declared righteous by our works. It is the grace of God and nothing else. Amen? Are you a genuine believer? This is a question that you have to ask introspectively. Are you genuinely trusting in the gospel? Can you see it working through your life? Can you see it demonstrated in your speech, in your conduct, your actions? I hope so. I hope so. Father, I thank you for a gentle nudge and rebuke and reminder of how serious it is for us as your followers to be mindful of our stewardship. Lord, you give us all these resources. Lord, and we're responsible to those. And one day they will be, we'll be held accountable to that. And uh, Lord, I thank you that we have the hope of eternal life, not based on what we do or don't do, but based on what we trust in the, in the gospel. But Lord, the reality is, is at the end of the age, during the tribulation, there'll be many people who profess to know you, but at the end, when you return from your long journey and that counting is set up and they're standing before you, that they will come up short because it wasn't genuine. Maybe they didn't trust you. Maybe they didn't genuinely place their hope and faith in you. And God, I pray that, uh, Lord, that's not the case in this church today. Lord, as we live in an age of grace, we know that this door of the church age is going to close and that opportunity is going to be gone. And so today is the day of salvation. Lord, would you please move in our hearts. Would you please help us to um, realize the brevity of life, that it's a vapor, and we're not guaranteed tomorrow, to make sure that we've placed our hope, our faith, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And from there, we see it begin working in our lives. Like I mentioned at the very beginning, with that soil in our hearts, it plants a seed, and it takes root, and it starts producing a crop, Lord, that will bring you glory, that we can look back with confidence and have no doubt that we belong to you because we see um, it manifests in our lives. Lord, would you make that um, true in all of our lives? If there's someone here today that's not placed their faith in you, God, I pray that today would be the day that you, Lord, would knock on the door of their heart and that they would respond to you in saving faith. Lord, we give you all the glory and all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.